Hello, welcome back to Habit Helps, a podcast of Creekside Community Church in San Leandro, California, where we are talking about how habits build you and about how you can build better habits. I'm Jeff Bruce. I'm a pastor here. I'm joined by the sage himself, the venerable, venerable doctor, reverend John Bruce, who is my dad. Dad, how are you? After that introduction, feeling very old. <laughs> old? That was not my intended... Uh, yeah. venerable. My intended. venerable, you know, young. Venerable. The young and venerable <laughs> Reverend John Bruce. So you, you doing well? I'm doing well. Doing Good. Well, we are, we are back to start a brand new series, and we're going to title this The Habits of a Missionary. The Habits of a Missionary. And this series, Dad, is really a, a natural extension of our last series on the habits of a disciple-maker. In our last series, we uh, made the case that every Christian is a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, and if you are following Jesus, you're responding to Jesus' command to make disciples. So a disciple is, by definition, a disciple-maker. And if you've been listening, I hope that point is now beyond dispute in your mind. Disciples make disciples. But making disciples requires initiative. It requires us to go, which is why Jesus does not command us to go and build churches and wait for people to attend your services so that they too may become disciples. No, those aren't his last words. His last words are go and make disciples. So an assumed part of disciple-making is going. And the reason we go is therefore because we are sent, which is exactly what Jesus says in John 17, as the Father sent me so I am sending you, talking to his uh, disciples and also by extension to every disciple throughout the age of the church. So every Christian is commanded by Christ and empowered by the Spirit to go into the world to make disciples, and all of that means, Dad, that every single Christian is, by definition, a missionary. Exactly. I think we define missionaries as somebody who goes to another country, but uh, really, missionary, as you said, is just want someone who is sent, and so if you're a disciple... You're a missionary, and therefore, you've got to be on the go. You, you're the one that's responsible to go to the world. The world is not commanded to come to you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of coming. It. Jesus never commands the world, come to the church, but he does dis, dis, dis command disciples to go to the world. Exactly. So that's good. So definitionally, we are missionaries. Missio, that Latin word from which we get missionary, it means sent. So you are a sent one. You are sent by Christ into the world. And, and so... How do we act like missionaries is the question. What do missionaries do? How do they think? What do they say? What are their priorities? What are their rhythms of life? Uh, those are the questions we want to, to answer because I think oftentimes we can think of mission work as something we do, but the Bible would say that missionaries are something we are. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not a matter of just adding things to your schedule. It's a matter of becoming a new kind of person. Right, right. And that means the development of habits. Right. So we're talking about the habits of a missionary. And to use that, we're going to use a book, just like we did for disciple-making. This time, we're going to use a book by Sam Chan, a brand-new book called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy, Personal Evangelism in a Skeptical World. Chan is an evangelist in Sydney, Australia, one of the most post-Christian places in the world. He's also a doctor and a surgical assistant. He's also a good writer, and he is genuinely funny. 
genuinely funny, I would say. So this is a great book, not so much on the theology or theory of being a missionary, but the actual practice of mission. And it's written by a practitioner. How do you live like a missionary in everyday life? And Chan gives us eight chapters, and in those eight chapters, he gives us eight different pro tips, I would call them, on how to live like a missionary from years of practice out on the field. And we're going to spend the next eight episodes looking at these. And if any of this whets your appetite to know more, just go buy the book. And full disclosure, there's no kickback here for me saying this. Sam, if you want to pay me for saying this, get in contact with me, let me know. But I'm, I'm, I'm letting you know, listeners, because this is actually a book we really like and that is really helpful and would encourage you to go buy it if you want to go deeper in this. But uh, eight pro tips, and we're going to tackle the first one, chapter one, And his first tip on acting, thinking like a missionary is this, that a missionary is someone who will merge their universes. Merge your universes. That's that's the first thing a missionary does. Uh, Dad, what does that mean? Well, I think maybe a helpful way to look at it is if you were a missionary to a foreign country, what would you do? I mean, (laughs) how would you get started? And, And what you would do is you need to find a way to connect with the people in that country. Yeah. You'd, you'd need to learn the language, obviously, but you'd, then you'd also have to look for some way that I can be in regular contact with the people I'm trying to reach. Right. I, I cannot remain separate from them and have an, uh, uh, an impact on them. I, right. I think spiritual influence depends on social connection. So mm. looking at what interest do I have that I can leverage uh, to be a place to connect with people? Or do I start a business? Or do I, uh, do I a- ask people over for dinner or what? But what are some things I can do practically that puts me into natural contact with the people I'm trying to reach? Mm-hmm. And then I think the next step is in merging your universes, we, we have a, a universe of believers we live in, mm-hmm. and we have a universe, hopefully, of unbelievers we live in. Yeah. And our job as a missionary is not so much to live in those two separate universes, but to bring those two universes together because non-believers need to be around believers. That's good. What, what Chan is saying and what we're saying there is that most believers, the assumption is that most believers live in two different worlds. And I've, I've often thought of them as the church world and the world world. Yeah. <laughs> and church world is all of these relationships that you foster with believers over the year. And world world is uh, the network of people you're connected to who don't know Jesus. Uh, so it can be in your neighborhood. It can be a social network. It can be work often or just need people you're, you're serving. So here's a question. The assumption there, if we need to merge them, is that they're not already merged. Right. That that they are distinct worlds that most Christians live in. I have my non-believing relationships over here. I have my believing relationships over there. And never the twain shall meet unless I do something about that. Why do you think that is, that, that there is a separation there? Well, I think there's just structurally, there, there are... It, we are working in different worlds. We're like working in. We we know our Christian friends generally from church, right? We know our unbelieving friends from work, yeah, or the neighborhood, or school, or something like that. But because these these are different worlds, yeah, structurally, mm-hmm. um, it takes more work on our part to begin to introduce people to one another and provide events. And, and ways for people uh, on both in both group worlds to get to know each other. 
Right. No, that's good. I don't think I don't think it's an intentional thing. I don't think we 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 keep or we protect our Christian friends from our unbelieving <laughs> friends or our unbelieving friends from our Christian friends. Though sometimes sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but for the most part, it's just in the daily routines of life, we are living in two different worlds. Mm-hmm. That's good. So I think this is a new idea for some of our li- listeners, because often we think about missionaries and missionary work. We think of it as leaving the people of God to go reach unreached people, and so that we can kind of get them, quote-unquote, and bring them back into the people yeah. of God. Yeah. But that's not what Shan is talking about in this chapter. He is saying that we need to find ways creatively to connect our Christian world and our non-Christian world. Right. Matchmaking, almost, where, where we create environments, these sort of third places between the world and the church, where we can connect socially as, as non-believers. Um, why is that important for reaching people? I think some of the pushback you could get here is, well, why can't I just go find people and bring them into the church? Why do we, as a community of people, need to go live life together in front of a watching world? That's a good question. I I think one reason is what you brought out when you spoke on John 17, that Jesus promised that as as people see the unity of the church, they will believe Mm -hmm. God sent Jesus and that God loves people. Mm -hmm. In other words, people have got—it is not who I am as an individual— as a witness, but it's who we are as a people, yeah. as a witness. And so that if 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 my non-believing friends can't see my believing friends together and see the difference that Christ makes, then I'm um, I'm, I'm missing a. In other words, if I'm trying to do all my evangelism as a lone ranger, right, I'm missing a great deal of the power that God has given for. Um, to bring people to Christ. The other thing that, that Chan brings up, which I thought made a lot of sense, was what he calls plausibility structures. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea there is that, and you might want to speak on this too, but uh, the whole idea is that what we believe is based far more on the community that we live in than it is on evidence and facts, right? Uh, things like that. In other words, I will tend to believe what the people I spend the most time with believe, whether it be politically um, or socially, or religiously, or whatever, I will tend to take on the views of the culture I'm in. Right. So as a result, Chan brings up the point that that most of the people who work at the New York Times don't have one Christian friend. Right. And so it's obvious why they're going to have a warped view of Christianity because they don't know any Christians. Yeah. And, and so. Uh, the way to bring people to Christ is not necessarily to marshal all of our arguments, mm-hmm. because most the arguments are down, further downstream. First of all, they just have to know some Christians. Yeah. I think it's a really humbling truth to consider how much we are formed by the communities we already live in. Yeah. And it's true on the right, it's true on the left, it's true for progressives, it's true for traditionalists, that in each of us form our plausibility structures for what is true, good, and beautiful based on the people who are closest to us. Yeah. And there's a great deal of honor for purporting the right beliefs, and there's a great deal of shame for believing the wrong things. And, and that really does um, shape powerfully the way we view every aspect of life. I think COVID-19 is actually a great example of that, because we're dealing with the same disease— <laughs> The same data, uh, we have more data and information on this disease than, than any disease in history. And yet, 
what's the best way to respond <laughs> to mask or not to mask? How safe? What do we do with schools? You see the nation reacting in profoundly different ways. And so much of it is based on the culture and framework of different places yeah. in terms of what to prioritize. Yeah. So something that is quote unquote science, <laughs> right? That is just this objective thing that we should all know how to respond to. Uh, the communities we are in profoundly shape the way we think about this and would react to it. Yeah. And it's true in every area of life that we are formed by the community we live in yeah. for what is good, true, and beautiful, which means you as an individual Christian going into a context, uh, if the people around you are operating within a different plausibility structure, well, it's going to be very hard for them to see your beliefs as believable even if you marshal good evidence and data for them, yeah. because there's no community that holds these things and practices them together. Right. That's what gives plausibility. So just sociologically, that is true. Yeah. That is absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I referenced to it before, but the, the book, The Celtic Way of Evangelism, mm -hmm. illustrates this, because Patrick, uh, who basically reached Ireland with the gospel, had a very unique approach to it. Right. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, their missionary strategy was go to a new area, build a church, mm -hmm. wait for people to come. Of course, they had to learn Latin before they could come to church, <laughs> stuff like that. It's a high bar of membership. That's right. And so the, bar the barbarians stayed away in droves. Right. <laughs> it just did not relate to them at all. So Patrick had a different approach. He would take a group of 20 or 30 believers and they would go to a particular kingdom, which was basically just a village ruled by a king, and they would get permission from the king to build a settlement next to the village. And then over time, they would build friendships with the people, and the, the, the non-believers would be hanging out with the believers, mm -hmm. find out what the believers believed and stuff. And, and what seemed implausible to the pagans in the beginning, the more time they spent in the time in the Christian community began to seem more possible. Mm -hmm. And then it became more plausible, and mm. they began to believe it was true. Yeah, And it was really a belong and then believe. Uh, and, and that seems the way most people become Christians. They get become part of a... I know that's the way people at Creekside have become Christians. Mm -hmm. People who have become Christians through Creekside, they had to be with us over a year or even two years yep. of being part of our community before they really came to faith. And I think the more of a post-Christian and, and biblically illiterate culture we're part of, the longer that time period is going to take, because people just have a lot of questions, they have a lot of uh, things to, to, to understand and get by, and, and Christian community is the great um, vehicle in doing that. Mm -hmm. You guys. Having a person part of your small group, for example, mm -hmm. is going to get, they're going to learn a whole lot more just by seeing how Christians relate, what's important to Christians, what Christians talk about, than you by yourself trying to explain the whole faith to them and answer all their questions. Yeah, that's good. So there's a sociological truth here. There's a historical truth. Yeah. I would say what undergirds each of those is a biblical truth about the model of evangelism that Jesus lays out for us in John 13 and John 17, which is John 13, 34 through 35, if you love one another, 
you so prove that my disciples, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Right. So, so we have the ability to supernaturally love one another in Christ. And so that what we are doing when we love one another is making the love of Christ visible. Yeah. That's actually what's happening at a spiritual level. And if that's the case, if we get closer to non-believers, they see our love for one another. What they are seeing is the love of God. Right. Right. And and it is not explicable right. apart from the gospel message. And Jesus says almost the exact same thing in John 17 when he says that our unity for one another will cause the world to believe that God sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world. And so again, it's the supernatural cross-shaped love that the Spirit of God enables us to exhibit. That is what convinces a watching world that our message is true. Right. And, and that's why Leslie Newbingen, uh, who was a missionary uh, to India and then to really the post-Christian world, he says that the Christian community is um, our framework for understanding the gospel. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing him, though, but that, that people need to see Christians loving each other to understand why this message could be true. Right. And that is what Jesus says. So if we're not doing that, um, it's going to be a lot harder to just convince people into the kingdom. Yeah, exactly. And, and so what that means is one of the main reasons our friends are not, one of the main reasons our friends aren't Christians mm-hmm. is they don't belong to a community of friends who also believe in Jesus. Right. You know, that's that's basically, it's, 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 it's very, very simple. And so... To merge our universes, we have got to have Christian friends, and we've got to have unbelieving friends. Right. And if I don't have both Christian friends and unbelieving friends, I have no universes to merge. Right. The first step in this is, do I have unbelieving friends? Right. Do I have people I am close enough to that I could invite to dinner at my house with my Christian friends, and they would come? Right. And if the, if the answer is no, that's just where I start. I start by by looking for where I can build friendships. What has God given me? What opportunities has God given me? What are my interests that could be used for the kingdom? What what about work? What about neighborhood? What about uh, school? What about social events? But where do I need to go in order to initiate and build these friendships? And I think the challenge of this is there are some Christians who are amazing at engaging with non-believers, right. but they really don't like Christian community, right? <laughs> because they feel like Christian community slows them down from reaching the world. Exactly. They love hanging out with with uh, with, with non-believers, but being part of a small group Bible study, it's kind of like eh, whatever. We're going to talk about our feelings, you know. They're not that interested in that. There are other Christians who are just fabulous at building deep, loving community, but they're so focused on nurturing those relationships that outsiders, quote unquote, are almost a threat to the health of the community. Yeah. That if we bring these in, and and so what we're saying here is you have to focus on both. Uh, that's where the magic happens in evangelism, yeah. where you have to be cultivating deep Christian friendships and deep non-Christian friendships. And this gets back to a point about disciple-making, is that it's it's quality over quantity. You have to be very intentional about, here are the Christian relationships I want to cultivate, here are the non-believing relationships I want to cultivate, and treat them like an intentional project. I know friends don't want to be projects, but frankly, in this busy world, the, the point is you have to have a plan to befriend this person. Yeah. To say, I am going to commit to checking in with this person, to planning social events with this person. It takes work to do that. Yeah. Uh, and then as you foster the relationship, then the more organic, natural things can happen where you invite them to the same things. Right. Yeah. Right. No, that's good. That's good. Yeah. So I think we, you have to say the goal is to be part of a Christian group 
are be part of a group that has both believers and unbelievers in it mm-hmm. on a regular basis. Yep. So if that's my goal, where am I now in that relationship, and what do I need to do to get to that point? Right. So it may be I need to build close enough friendships so that people will trust me so that I can begin to introduce them to my Christian friends. Yeah. Or I may, on the other side, I may need some Christian friends. I need, <laughs> need some Christians who have the same goal in, in being sent, mm-hmm. missionary that I do, that I can co-labor with. Right. And, and we've got some great examples of that at Creekside, of just you know neighbors who will live close to each other who are believers and say, hey, we're going to put on a block party. We're going to be the ones to do it. And then we're going to throw it together as believers just to mingle here yeah. together. Just things like that. I think what I would say for community groups listening to this and thinking about it, I want you to picture your, your group and you're in a backyard, once we can be, um, and you're having a barbecue. And you see, imagine the, the community group there mingling together. And imagine there's about the same number of just friends you're socially connected to that you've invited to this barbecue. And it could be for anything. It can be a birthday party. It can just be, we're going to do this once a month. Let's do this. I want you to imagine that scene and then ask the question, does this feel awkward to do? Yeah. And why? Does it feel awkward because you don't trust the people in your community group (laughs) to represent Christ well? Yeah. Does it feel awkward because we only know one Christian, non-Christian friend between us, and he's going to feel really weird if that's the only person invited. Is it? We never do things like that. And so it would just feel like such a, an unnatural thing to do. And so then work backwards from there to say that's where we want to get to. It's a point where we can just naturally hang out, and it's unforced. We're just enjoying each other's company. Yeah. And, and then work backward and ask, what are the steps that would need to happen before we can get there? Yeah. It might be making more friends. It might be having a greater vision as a community group for that. It might be building deeper relationships with people in your community group so that you really trust each other to do that. Because one thing we've said is that it's, a, it's kind of a sacred thing when you bring a non-believing friend into that space where you're introducing them to your Christian friends that you've really got to trust the other Christians you're with to represent Christ well to this person and not give them a negative <laughs> experience with Christ. And it's just important to be honest about those things, um, because I think they are sometimes the unspoken barriers as to why we wouldn't bring a non-Christian into our circle of yeah. Christian friends. Yeah, no, that's good. I think, too, common interests are huge. Right. And if you can find a common interest that is shared by both unbelievers and believers— and use that so there is an authentic there's there's an authentic desire to be together to do this thing, uh, and it could be anything. It could be touring restaurants, right? Going to different restaurants, <laughs> so easy. I I'm part of a group. We go to a different restaurant every month, right? Are you? Would you like to do that with us? Maybe it's playing poker, right? Uh, maybe it's it's having volleyball games. It could be it could yeah. be anything, but it's authentic. It's something that that people are interested in, regardless of their spiritual state. Right. You can build a ministry around that. I, I, I just think of uh, Francis and Edith Schaefer uh, at Labrie. Yeah. And, and they built a, a, a ministry that affected many, many people by simply having a little chalet in Switzerland mm-hmm. built around hospitality. Yeah. And they just became a place that if you're uh, wandering around Europe... Yeah, this is a place you could come. 
Right. And when people would come there, you could get a meal, but you'd also get a philosophical discussion. Yep. And and, and Francis Schaefer, you know, and, and he's, his mind is up in the clouds. Right. But they had great, you know, you and people would stay because of the discussions. They could just, you know, they found this is a place I'll be accepted. This is a place where we talk about things where I don't talk about anywhere else. This is a place where people love me. And all kinds of people not only became Christians, but then they reproduced places like that all over the world. Right. And and yeah. Again, so you see the just the the energy right. comes from putting believers and mm-hmm. believers together. Yeah, that's so good. And I think um, fielding an objection here that Chan himself fields sometimes people feel uncomfortable with this because it feels like evangelism in disguise. Like, oh, we're just going to hang out and then kind of secretly introduce the gospel. Like the gospel is an ulterior an ulterior motive here. Um, but what I would say is that winning people to Christ, is it should always be your ultimate motive, not your ulterior motive, which means there should be nothing underhanded about the way you do things. Um, it, you don't say we're having a dinner party and then then spring a Bible study on people. Right. <laughs> right. Don't don't act like like this person is is some sort of pet project, right? I know I used the word project earlier. What I meant is you want to be intentional in cultivating relationships. But the relationship can't hinge on the person's response to the gospel. The relationship is a relationship. Yeah. Um, but but be open about your faith. Be open about what you think about things. Foster that kind of openness. Um, without pressuring the person to believe what you believe. And what I have found is that people in our culture are desperate to have meaningful conversations. Yeah. yeah. Because who else is having these? Yeah. People don't want to have them online. People don't want to argue on social media to figure things out. They want to have deep conversations with people who are interesting yeah. and have opinions on things, and then they can talk about them. And the more you foster a place where there's psychological safety to have those without any pressure— um, I think people are hungry for it. I think non-believers are hungry for it. Yeah. And you will find some, some people won't be interested in that. Some people, and that's fine. That's <laughs> Jesus said, expect that, that, that some people won't want to be in that kind of environment, but there are people who do, yeah. and they're going to be interested to hear more. And we'll talk more about the, the art of, of conversation as we go on. But, uh, yeah. but just as an encouragement to everyone, it's not an ulterior motive. It's, 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 it's what we want for everyone. Exactly. We just don't have any sales tactics or high pressure, um, you know, sort of, uh, way of doing that. Yeah. No, I think it's good. You brought up, it's not a bait and switch, right? Um, it, it's not surprising people with the gospel, but what it is, is it's doing things together. So there a level of trust and comfort is established so that then you can talk about these issues without feeling pressured or anything, because you know these people. Yeah. You know they care about you. Yeah, and you know they're not going to be shocked or offended by your views on things. So they're going to they're gonna listen to you, and, and you create an environment uh, where it's, it's safe to talk about those things. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's good. Uh, one of the points Chan makes up that I think is really good is that sometimes we think evangelism is proclamation, right? We've got to get out and proclaim the gospel. And that's true. There is proclamation gospel. Um, but there's an idea that that's the only mode of evangelism is that we have to just kind of go out and declare it. And that if it's anything else, if it's about building relationships, then, uh, then it's sort of, it's trite or it's, it's, it's insincere. That's not what evangelism actually is. And he brings up a great point. When you think about Billy Graham and, uh, how people came to faith, people would go to a crusade 
And then Billy Graham would invite people to come down onto the field if they were ready to believe in Jesus. And he would always say the same thing. It's okay. The buses will wait. <laughs> Basically, we have time here. And the point Chan brings up is, well, what buses is he talking about? It's the buses from churches yeah. that brought non-believers to the event. Yeah. And the point Shan makes is that in the 40s, 50s, 60s, when Graham was at his height, uh, there was a plausibility structure in our culture already built in for the gospel, that churches were community centers, believers would come into them, non-believers would come into them, and all of the, the mental architecture they needed to believe was already there. There is a God, there is something called sin, I am guilty of sin, and really what they were just waiting for is someone to preach the real gospel to them because they hadn't heard it and they would believe. Yeah. And so, but, but the point he's making is the only reason proclamation gospel worked there is because the friendship evangelism piece had already been there. There was already a community buttressing the claims. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I was at some of those crusades. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 80% of the people who go forward at those crusades are already church members. Yeah. They just need—I I heard Dr. Graham say one time, if I have any spiritual gift, it's the gift of giving an invitation. Mm -hmm. And, and uh that's what he did. He was able to bring what they already believed all together mm -hmm. at to a point of decision. You you need to decide. Yeah, today is the day. You, to, you need to decide, and that's and so the exactly what you're saying. These are people who had already had long term relations with Christians, and had heard the gospel probably already in in their churches, but this is what was going to finally close the sale for them. Right. We live in a totally different culture now. Uh, because the, 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 I, even when I started out with Campus Crusade, we could just sit down on campus and share the four spiritual laws with people, and most of the people we would share with had some church background. Yep. So they understood a little bit about what we were talking about. They just needed somebody to put it all together in a, in a clear, short, communicable form to say, this is what the gospel is, this is how you receive Christ. Right. We saw that change. Yeah rapidly over the years as less and less people were influenced by the church, as more and more people grew up without any significant Christian influence in their lives. Um, and so you have to start way, way, way back at the beginning, and it's a much longer process. That's good. And there's no bypassing John 13 and John 17 in this process. If we're going to be biblical in our mode of evangelism, it means merging our universes. Yeah. It means non-believers and believers having social connection together. Yeah. And, and, and so that's really the practical takeaway to me, is evaluate your Christian relationships and your non-Christian relationships and say, what needs to change for these universes to merge? Yeah. And, and just to let you know, listeners, it's going to need to be very intentional. Yeah. You have to block out time to invest in these relationships. Uh, and as you do the more um, serendipitous <laughs> things will happen, right? Where, oh, we get this connection, and this person met this person, and, and great. But, but it, it takes planning on the front end to say, I'm really going to invest in these relationships. Yeah. And it also takes faith. You, yep. you have got to, um, st and this is something I'm learning right now, but I have to make myself available to God every day to be used in whoever's life he brings into my life. Mm -hmm. And I have to anticipate that he's going to do that, mm -hmm. so that I I recognize the opportunity when it appears, and I make the most of it, whether it's to do good, 
or share my faith or just reach out in love or whatever it is. But as you begin to do that, as you begin to anticipate that God is going to give you opportunities to connect with those who don't know Christ, mm-hmm. find it happening more and more and more. Yeah. And we'll talk more about this too. But uh, my guess is that most of the people we're talking to have far more Christian relationships than they have relationships with unbelievers, just mm-hmm. what I know. And so I think that's where to focus their attention on, uh, is to how, what who are my Christian, non-Christian friends that I could introduce to my Christian friends. Yeah. And developing genuine relationships with people who don't know God is assumed here. Yeah. And that's a great lead into our next episode, because how do you do that? <laughs> he gives pro tips on how to do that. But, but the takeaway here is each of us have two universes we're living in as, as Christians. If we're thinking like missionaries, we're always thinking about how do we merge these yeah. universes. Yeah. yeah, as he says, evangelism is a team sport. Mm-hmm. It's not an individual sport. Yeah. We need each other. Yep. Good. Any other thoughts? Those are... I'm thought... I'm thought out. You're thoughtless. Good. Thoughtless. (laughs) Well, good. I'm excited about this series and and praying it's going to be helpful to you as listeners because this is really the deal here, that we have been sent into the world to participate in God's redemptive mission. And so these are our lifelong lessons to to, to keep learning, to keep growing in. Hope this was helpful and uh, excited to continue this discussion next time.